turn to that person sitting next to you and say, I'm glad you're here. See, even if you didn't mean it, you can say, I'm glad you're here. Then say, what we're going to experience, did you hear me? See, you didn't hear me, did you? Here's what I want you to say. Look at that person and say, what we're going to experience will change your life if you let it. I heard about a little boy playing out in his front yard one day. A man came down the street looking fr- frustrated, confused. He said to, to the boy, he said, son, I, I'm new in town and I'm lost. Can you tell me how to get to the post office? The little boy said, sure, just go to the stop sign, turn left, it's right around the corner. The man thanked him, and he said, uh, by the way, he said, I'm the new pastor in town. He said, if you'll come to my church on Sunday, I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And the little boy thought about it for a moment, and he said, no thanks. You don't even know how to get to the post office. Listen, I know how to get to the post office. And over the next five weeks, I want to help every one of us get to a place that we've never been before. I want to help every one of us and this church reach our God-given potential, the maximum limit of our God-given potential. Now, it's been my practice in the years that I've been here as pastor to, to spend the month of January talking about the church. In, in past years, we've talked about the nature and the character of the church, the purpose of the church, the, the mission of the church. And uh, we're going to follow suit this year with a series of messages that we're calling Transforming Church. And it's a, it's a series designed to deepen our relationships, our relationships with God and our relationships with each other. It's a series designed to help us discover what the church was really meant to be. We're going to examine the feasibility and the, and the necessity of doing what the church used to do. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about going, uh, going back 30 years or 50 years. Hey, folks, it's never going to be 1965 again at this church, okay? I'm talking about going back 2,000 years. To, 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 to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2, and, and to, to, to seeing what that church did and how if we will begin to, to put into practice the same kinds of things that they did, we can become the church that God wants us to be and we can experience spiritual life at the deepest level. So follow along, please. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2. We're just diving right in this morning. It's on the, if you have a uh, message notes, folder that was inside your bulletin. All of the scriptures are right inside there, and you can follow along there if you don't have a Bible with you. If you have your Bible, you ought to just turn over there uh, to the book of Acts. And as always, the the verses will be up on the screen as we go along. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. These are familiar verses to you because this is not the first time um, that we've we've been here. So follow along as we, we read about this this early church. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions 
and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple every Sunday. Is that what it said? Uh, midweek. No? What does it say? Each day. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And at every altar call on Sunday, the Lord added people to the church. No? What does it say? And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Listen, everything we're going to talk about for the next few weeks is related to those verses right there. Those are the foundational verses. We're going to come back to those verses again and again and again throughout this series. Because not only do we, do we find a historical account, I believe we find the five purposes of the church in that passage of Scripture. Let me tell you what those are. They're in your notes if you want to fill these in. We're going to, again, we're going to reference these again and again. The five purposes of the church are to build real fellowship with one another, to experience worship as part of our daily lifestyle, to take successive steps of spiritual growth, to practice personal stewardship, and to reach out to the world around us. You say, Pastor, this sounds kind of like the five wishes you had for the new year. Eh, you're catching on. You're smarter than I think you are. No, that's not possible. Wait a minute, yes, it is possible. Let me tell you what else is possible. It's possible for our church, it's possible for every church to know how to get where we're going. To know where we're going and to know how to get there. How to, to navigate the waters and be driven to the place that God wants us to be. It's, we're driven by mission and we're driven by the mission that's laid out for the church in the Word of God. That's why we worked really hard a few years ago at coming up with a mission statement that we feel like is firmly rooted in this scripture, in the scripture we just read, and in those five purposes of the church. And it's every week. It's on the front page of your bulletin. Every week you can, you can read it there. And it says this, New Hope Community Church exists to glorify God in worship, in service to our community, in outreach to the lost and unchurched, and in providing a place of nurturing relationships and spiritual growth. You want an easy way to remember that? I mean, that's kind of a mouthful. Everything in it can be boiled down to five words. Fellowship, learning, outreach, worship, and service. F-L-O-W-S. That's the purpose. And I'll tell you that I believe that every, every principle, every concept, every commandment given to the church to carry out its mission, falls under one of those five components that are part of our mission statement, that are part of the purpose for the church, that are part of Acts chapter 2. This morning we're going to dig in and see how we can build real fellowship with each other. How do you build, build real fellowship? In the church I grew up in as a boy, fellowship was, was kind of only half a word. Because it never stood alone. It was almost, fo almost always followed by the word dinner. Fellowship dinner. And it was totally meaningless unless the, the two words were together. And, and so that's why one day when I heard two men in our church talking about a third man who, who was not coming to church very much, who was missing a lot, one of the men said 
Well, the Bible says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And plus, a person just needs fellowship with the church in order to live faithfully. And that confused me. I knew folks ought to go to church, but I wasn't too sure how eating with church people could help me live a faithful life. And then another time, a friend of my mother's from church came over to the house. and They sat at the kitchen table drinking coffee and talking about everything that was going on in the church. When the woman got ready to leave, she gave my mom a hug and she said, Thanks so much for the fellowship. Fellowship? They hadn't eaten anything. They just had coffee and talked. So I was confused. I was confused about the nature and the purpose of Christian fellowship. And a a lot of believers are. A lot of Christians are. But not the Christians in that first church in Acts chapter 2. They were excellent at fellowship. They understood it. They devoted themselves to the church and to each other. One of the things that made the first church of Midtown Jerusalem so so special was that the people understood how important relationships really are. That's why we read things in there like in verse 42, Acts 2.42, when it says they devoted themselves to fellowship. Down in verse 44, it says they shared everything they had. Verse 46 says they, they worshiped together. They met in homes. They shared meals together. They were building real fellowship. We need a little bit of a grammar lesson here. Because that word devoted, it means something that we give ourselves to completely and with finality And it goes on forever and ever. It's not describing something that happens for a little while and then doesn't happen anymore. It describes something that begins at a point in time and it goes on and keeps on happening forever and ever. And it's constant. It never wanes. It never grows weak. It is unrelenting. never lets up. They felt that way. They devoted themselves to fellowship. That's sharing. That's intimacy. That's knowing someone from the inside out and the outside in and being totally committed to being in relationship with them. One of the things we discover when we get involved in a really good church is that church is not a building that we go to. It's a family we belong to. And while there are a lot of things that we do that are good and even important, you know, we, 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 we work together, we serve together, we study spiritual truth together, it's also important for a church to be a place where we can know and be known, where we can love and be loved, where we can celebrate and be celebrated. And then we need to make sure that we know this. See, from time to time, I, I run into people who think that our church is too big. But guess what? When we were at 100, I ran into people that thought our church was too big, right? And then when we were last year, the beginning of last year, when we were averaging 200, there were people who thought our church was too big. Now we're averaging over 300. People think our our church is too big. And they say things like, well, you, you can't really fellowship, you know, in a big church. Oh, really? Because this church in the book of Acts wasn't a little small home group. 
Okay? We're not talking about a couple handfuls of people, 20 or 30 people in a little, you know, uh, white building somewhere, you know, or a little red brick building with white columns. In Acts chapter 2, it says that the church had 3,000 people in it. How about that? And you know what? A couple weeks later, by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, we're told that the church was 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Now, they didn't count them then because then they didn't count. Right? Didn't matter. The men were, were what was important. But today, I'm kind of curious about that. I mean, and some of you have heard me do this math before. If there were 5,000 men, let's assume that half of them were married. There's another 2,500 people. And let's further assume that half of those married couples have at least one child. That's another 1,250 people. And we're up to, what, almost 9,000 people? And yet, the level of fellowship that we need to aspire to, the, 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 the real fellowship that we need to be building, is what was being carried out in a church of that size. Listen, let me tell you what, what studies show. Studies show no matter how large a church is, that a person in a church can only know 60 other people. Now, if this was a church of 60 people, that means you could know everybody. But guess what? When it got to be a church of 61 people, <laughs> you wouldn't know everybody. And so no matter how, how big the church gets, 60 people is about the maximum relationship load that a person carries. This was a huge church. This was a huge church with some logistical problems. They didn't have any church building. There was persecution and opposition. Right? It was brand new. And you know how when things are new, the first time you try to do something, there's kind of chaos and confusion. I mean, don't you, can you imagine what Sunday morning was like for this new congregation of 9,000 people? They didn't know you know, who was going to be preparing communion or who was going to be working in the nursery or they didn't have any of that stuff down. And yet the fellowship that they built with one another was what we're told to aspire to. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 12. Because there, there are five key things that I think need to be present that, that, that can help us begin to build real fellowship in, in that passage of Scripture. Now, I'm not going to read all those verses there. They're all in your, your message outline. You might want to read those later. Uh, but I, I want to touch on some verses as we go along and walk through these five keys this morning. First of all, if we're going to build real fellowship, we have to love each other. We have to love each other. This is how it starts out in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, 9 and 10. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. In other words, if there's anything that's wrong or out of line, hate that. But the things that are good, you want to hold tightly to that. You want to encourage that. And then verse 10 says, love one another, love each other with genuine affection. Now, some of you have heard this before. The, the, the Greeks 
had it a lot better than we do when it comes to expressing love. We have to use the same word, love, whether we're talking about, you know, ice cream or a, a, a movie or a motorcycle or our spouse. We use the same word. I love pie. I love Vicky. <laughs> I love Vicky more than pie, but I love pie. Well, the Greeks had different words that they could use in different situations. The, the, the one we're most familiar with is agape. That's the one that occurs most of the time in, in the New Testament. It's that unconditional, sacrificial love, like the way that Jesus loved us. But they had other words as well. They had philia. And philia is like love between two brothers or two friends. Uh, sometimes the word philia would be used with the word for brother, which was adelphos. Philadelphos. Does it sound like anything you ever heard before? Philadelphia, which is called the city of brotherly love. See? They had a word, storge. It, it meant fond affection, and it was most often used in Greek writings to talk about how parents and children felt about each other, the, the affection that they had. And then they had a word, eros. And we get our word, erotic. From that. That talked about love that expressed itself in an intimate physical way, and that word's not used in the New Testament. But here's what I want you to see. In those first couple of verses, in Romans 12, Paul uses all three of the other words. He uses philea, he uses storge, he uses agape. Why? Because love works at different levels. Now, here's the most important thing we've got to see about this. This, this will help us tremendously when we understand that the love that is talked about in the Scripture is not an emotion. It's not an emotional response. It's not passion. It's not feelings-based. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. It's a decision that I'm going to seek for and work for your good, your benefit. That's what it means to be devoted, to share that brotherly love, to have that fond affection and kindness toward one another. And, it, and we can't get too tangled up in feelings. In fact, love as an emotion is a very recent concept in, in human history. Think about this. How could the Bible command us to have an emotion? You know, as, as, I, as I pondered that, as I thought about that, really the only emotion I could command you to have and be successful is anger. I mean, think about it. I could command you, be angry, get angry, and eventually you are going to get angry with me. So how could, how could the Bible command us to feel an emotion? It's, it, it, it can't. So it tells us to make a decision, a decision to treat one another and to care for one another like brothers should, like a parent takes care of a child. Listen, my my brothers and I, and some of you can relate to this, we fought like cats and dogs. Oh, my gosh. <clears throat> when I get together with my brothers and start to, we start telling stories, my kids' ears perk up, and they can't believe the things that we did to each other. Okay? I have this mental image in my mind of my, I have two younger brothers, the one that's just younger than me, with a tire iron in his hand beating the hubcaps off of my car. And I won't bother to tell you the situation that caused it to happen, but I can see it just like it happened yesterday, okay? 
as you might imagine, I did not feel fondly affectionate toward him at that time. In fact, if I could have gotten myself, my hands, on a tire iron, I might not be here today because I would be incarcerated. But here's the deal. If somebody picked on him, he had to go through me. Right? You know what I'm saying? Wasn't that true in your family? You beat one another. You say whatever you want to 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 each other. But don't let somebody outside the family come and try to attack another member. That's what's what's being talked about here. That's that's the root of real fellowship. That's what it means to to love one another. It means I'm going to work for your good, and I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to help you. In fact, all of the other things that we're about to talk about kind of flow out of this first decision that we make to love one another, to seek one another's good, and to make sure that, that each other's taken care of. Because Paul goes on to say, this is number two, the second key. Paul says if we're going to build real fellowship, we have to honor each other. We have to honor each other. The, the last part there, verse 10, Romans 12, verse 10 says, take delight in honoring each other. The NIV says, honor one another above yourselves. The word originally meant something weighty, something that had some some heft to it, some substance to it. It later came to mean high esteem, dignity, respect. And literally what the wording here says is, lead the way in honoring other people. You take the lead in honoring other people. You go first. You, see, it speaks to worth and it speaks to value. And so what's being said here is, you go first at respecting other people. You go first at at valuing other people. You go first at, at, at treating everyone around you as if they are important and valuable, as if they, they uh, should be esteemed and respected and honored. Does it surprise you that the Bible never tells us to seek honor for ourselves? It never does. It tells us to honor one another, to honor others above ourselves. See, now, the way that works is, I honor you, you honor them, they honor them, they honor me. I honor you, you honor them. You see? That's how it's designed to work. We're told to get out front, to lead the pack in showing honor to others. You know, if we could do that consistently, man, how much interpersonal conflict and strife would decrease, would just disappear because we took the lead in respecting and esteeming one another. You know, it's hard to build a close relationship with somebody when you're constantly critical or negative or angry at them. But when you're honoring them and respecting them, then real fellowship can be built. So Paul tells us to to love each other, to honor each other. And then Paul says, if we're going to build real fellowship, we, we have to share with each other. Look at verse 13, Romans 12, 13. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice 
hospitality. I like the old King James here. It says that we should be distributing to the necessity of the saints. In a couple weeks, we're going to read something incredible about this early church, about this first church. In Acts chapter 4, it's going to tell us that there were no needy people in that church. And it does not mean that they stood at the door and when needy people came, they said, nope, you can't come in. This is only for people who are not needy. No, it means that every need that surfaced in that church was met. Let me tell you something else. There's no reason that anybody in this church should ever do without anything that they need. Because I know, listen, I can speak from experience, and I can praise God that this church is full of kind and generous people, people who without a second thought will give to meet a need, will pick up a, a toolbox and get to work, who will do whatever it takes to meet any need, your need, my need, whoever's. But listen, even though we are, we are a wonderfully gifted, talented, and skilled bunch, we lack one skill. We're not mind readers. You know what breaks my heart is to hear about somebody who was in need and nobody knew about it. Because we didn't reach out, because we didn't share. Please give us the opportunity to help. Communicate your need. Use the Connect card. Call, leave, a, leave a message on the answering machine. My contact information, Michelle's contact information, is in the bulletin every week. Communicate your need. Let us share it with you. That's the fellowship that ought to characterize our life together. But don't miss this now because Paul, at the very end of that, that passage, he turns the sharing focus outside the church. When he says we ought to practice hospitality, he's talking about friendliness and kindness that is shown to strangers. Hospitality literally means love for strangers. And that says something about the way we ought to treat people, including the people who aren't here, who aren't part of our church. Several years ago, a pastor named James Hewitt, he had a man in his church conduct an experiment. The man went to 18 different churches over the course of 18 weeks to find out what was really going on. And every Sunday, the man was, was clean and neatly and appropriately dressed for the church that he was attending. He always arrived a few minutes before the service began, and he hung around for a few minutes after the service was over. He participated. He sang. He, he brought his Bible. He was interested and engaged in what was going on, and he, um, he gave points to rate the reception that he received. For example, if someone smiled at him, the church got 10 points. Every time someone smiled at him, he gave the church 10 points. If someone sitting nearby greeted him, he gave them 10 points. If anybody introduced themselves to him, he gave 100 points. If he was invited to return to the church, to come back and be a guest a second time, he gave them 200 points. If he was introduced to another person, he gave them 1,000 points, and if he, he was invited to meet the pastor, he gave the church 2,000 points. 11 of 18 churches earned fewer than 50 points. Five of them received 20 or less, and one actually received zero Folks, we can, uh, 
We can teach the Bible straight down the line. And, and, and our worship can just, you know, give people cold chills and, and make the hair on the back of our neck stand straight up. And the sermon can be so inspirational that people are just waving hankies and throwing babies into the air. But if a guest thinks that nobody cares whether they're here or not, they won't come back. We need to be welcoming and gracious to everybody, not just the people we know. We need to work on making everybody who walks through these doors feel special and welcome. That's a critical part of building real fellowship. On the back of your, your uh, message notes, there's a little thing that we call line up. Line up to be a friendly church every Sunday. And there are um, six things there. Every, every week in this message series, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Here's the homework for this week. I'm, I'm going to ask you to read through that. Read through line up there and put that into practice this week and for the next five weeks. Just begin to do those things. Okay. If you will do that, it will turn up the hospitality temperature in this church. And, and the there, every church I have ever known, every church I know anything about, could use the hospitality temperature turned up just a little bit. Okay, So take a look at that. Even if you're not taking notes today, you can look at that insert. We're going to make sure that that's in there every week so you can refer to that. Let's put that into practice. Now let's go on to number four, the fourth key. Paul says if we're going to build real fellowship, we have to support each other. We have to support each other. Romans 12, 15 says, Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. I love the way Eugene Peterson phrases that in the message. He says, Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy and share their tears when they're down. A few years ago during Bible Beach Club, I hurt my knee. I was running to answer the phone and just bent the wrong way. I don't know what else to tell you. It operates under a extra standard load anyway, I guess is the only way to say that. Without. And, and so I hurt my knee, and it was weeks before I could, could walk on it without it just hurting bad. And really, truthfully, I probably should have gone to see an orthopedist or something, but I'm a man, and we don't do things like that. So <coughs> we're dumb like that. I don't, I don't, it's, no, it's not a good quality. But let me tell you something that, I, that, I, that, that came home to me in such reality. It was something that I really always kind of knew and, and, and always kind of, uh, you know, talked about before, but I experienced it. And that is that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. See, I had to change my gait. I had to change the way I moved around, right? And because I did that, my hips hurt and my back hurt and my, my upper body hurt. My shoulders hurt. Why? Because... Of my knee. If one part of the body of Christ is suffering, the whole body suffers. Nobody should suffer in isolation. We need to be able to be happy and celebrate with people who rejoice, but we've also got to be able and willing to cry with people who cry. And do it sincerely. I mean, do it from compassion. And that's something I can't teach you. That's something I can't open your heads or your hearts and pour into you. Compassion, that's going to have to come from within. God's going to have to generate that by His Holy Spirit. 
His people need compassion. They need sincerity, not superficiality. When someone is hurting or struggling, guess what they don't need? They don't need us to give them seven handy steps to victory or to recommend a good Bible study or a seminar that will fix everything, make it all better. They don't need anybody downplaying the seriousness of the situation. Again, men, we tend to do that because we're fixers. And we go, oh, no, no, we can take care of this. We can fix this. And sometimes it can't be fixed. No, what they need is somebody to come alongside them and be with them and let them know that, that, that we hurt with them. That, that we, we may not understand their situation, we may not be able to fix their situation, but we care. And we're going to be there. I, lo- I don't know who said it, but I love this quote. Love is, is my decision to make your problem my problem. Real fellowship grows when we support each other. And then number five, Paul says, finally, if we're going to build real fellowship, we have to get along with each other. Get along with each other. Romans 12, 18. Says, Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. I, I, the, the New American Standard, I don't remember exactly how it says it there, but it says something like, as far as it depends on you, do all you can to live at peace with one another. Have you ever wondered why Paul had to tell brothers and sisters in Christ to live in peace with one another? I, not if you've ever been to a church business meeting, you've never had to wonder that. <laughs> Why did Paul have to write this to the Colossians? He wrote this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says, Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Did I read that right? It doesn't say forgive those who come crawling back to you, crying, admitting how terribly they treated you, showing you the scars where they have beaten themselves up. And then you can think about possibly forgiving them. It doesn't say that at all, does it? Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. I'll tell you why Paul has to remind us of that. Because we lose sight of some very important things. We lose sight of some very important truths. You see, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity, and peace is not the absence of conflict. It's acceptance in spite of conflict. See, unity and peace does not mean that we all look alike, dress alike, act alike, talk alike, think alike, etc. God created a tremendously diverse world, and nowhere is it more apparent than in His creation of you people. There's some diversity here. If you don't believe it, have my wife and, 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 and uh, Sean Meek stand up next to each other. Right? You don't believe it, stand, stand me or, 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 or Ron up next to one of you guys with a full head of hair. Huh? I, I went too far, didn't I, Ron? We're different colors, different shapes, 
We have different personalities. So, so when will we stop trying to make everybody identical? When will we recognize that we can be different and get along? A very wise person once compared people to a bunch of porcupines huddling together on a cold winter night. We, we need to be warm. We want to be warm. So the colder it gets, the closer we get together for that warmth. But the closer we get to each other, the more we kind of stick each other and, and hurt each other with our sharp quills. And so to avoid the pain, we kind of drift apart. We wander along by ourselves. And we freeze to death alone. Jesus offers us an alternative. He offers us an alternative to to separation from one another and, and freezing to death alone. Jesus says, you can forgive. You can overlook. You can put up with the sharp pokes that we receive without getting angry or without poking back because guess what? That way we all stay together and we all stay warm. In uh, in a church where we're building real fellowship, we find ways to get along. And yes, there will be differences and there will be personality conflicts, but we live in peace in spite of those things. Real quick, to close this out, I want us to look at Psalm 133. Psalm 133 is almost exactly in the middle of the Bible. It's one of the shortest chapters in the Bible. And it was written by King David who had experienced real fellowship in the company of those who were called David's mighty men. Well, let me read this real quick, Psalm 133. It says, How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head and that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Now, that first verse there, It's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? It's great when everybody gets along. But then the next verse, what's all this pouring oil on each other? What's about up with this guy with the oily beard? And then the third verse, my goodness, who's Herman? Why is he spilling his Mountain Dew? Well, in David's day, there were two great offices in the nation of Israel. There there was the office of the king, that was David's gig. And the other was the office of the high priest. And the office of the high priest was a hereditary office. It passed down from father to son in the family line of Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the very first high priest. And being high priest was was a job for life. Once you became high priest, you were high priest until you died. And so most of the people only got to see the appointing, the anointing of one high priest in their entire lifetime. And when that happened, it was a, it was a big, big deal. I mean, you know, think about Woodstock plus Times Square on New Year's Eve plus the, you know, the Carroll County Fair. It was a big deal. It was this huge ceremony because this person who was being anointed was going to represent the people to God on a daily basis. He was going to be the one who performed the annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement that made it possible for the people's sins to be forgiven. It was a big, big deal. And so when a priest was anointed, the whole community came. 
All, everyone, the whole nation gathered in Jerusalem. And there was, there was music and there was incense burning and there was shouting and then there were prayers. And then they brought out this special mixture of oil and spices. And it was a mixture that the, its only use ever was for the anointing of a new high priest. It was never used for anyone or anything else. And they poured it all over his head. And it ran down into his beard, and it would, it would get on his robe. And listen, unless someone was lucky enough to outlive the priest, then the fragrance that was given off by that anointing oil was something they would only smell one time in their life. They'd only experience it one time. So David, reaching out to describe real fellowship, searching for a way to talk about how awesome it is, he pictured that once-in-a-lifetime event. And he said, it's like that. Real fellowship prompts the same level of enthusiasm and joy as the celebration of the anointing of a new high priest. Everybody in Jerusalem, everybody that read those words thought, I understand that. And just so nobody missed it, he goes on then to give a second analogy in verse 3 when he says, it's like the dew of Hermon falling on Mount Zion. See, Israel is a very dry climate. And they have, a, they have a, an annual short rainy season. And outside of that, all of the plants and all the animals and all the people have to survive on the moisture that comes from one source, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the northern end of Israel, and it's tall. It's the highest mountain in, in that part of the, the world, and it's high enough that it catches the wind. It catches the breeze that comes off the Mediterranean Ocean uh, to the west. And it catches that breeze, and it captures the moisture in that breeze, which becomes dew, which becomes streams, which becomes a river. And every living thing in Israel gets its water. From that natural source. Without the dew from Mount Hermon, everything in Israel would die of thirst. Everyone and everything. So David says, let me tell you how, how critical, how important real fellowship is. You, you know that, you know the effect that Mount Hermon has on everything in our country? That's the effect real fellowship has. It brings life. It brings refreshment. It's essential for our survival. And listen, the effects of real fellowship, they may start in here, but they spread out from here into our community and bring life and refreshment. So say this after me. Repeat after me. How wonderful and pleasant. It is when brothers live together in harmony. Real fellowship is, is historic. It's epic. It's a once-in-a-lifetime anointing event for a nation. And it's an environmental lifesaver for an ecosystem. And see now, you know what you can do? You can look at your neighbor and say, I understand that psalm now. Why don't you do that? Say it, tell them, I understand that psalm now. So you learned something today. I'm just like a Snapple cap. You're going to learn something. 
Can you see how each element, each one of these keys that we've talked about builds on and supports the others? I mean, if we love each other, then we're going to honor each other and we're going to share with each other and we're going to get along with each other. And if I honor you, if I recognize your value and I, I give, give weight to your dignity and your, your esteem, then I'm going to love you and I'm going to share with you and I'm going to support you. And on and on and on it goes through each thing. And you know, someone once said, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. <laughs> and we're a diverse family. Different backgrounds and different ages and different life situations, different experiences. But we're family. And God says, act like family. Act like family and love each other and honor each other and share with each other and support each other and get along with each other. Those are the things that take us deeper into one another's lives and, and, and builds a closeness that enables us to build a transforming church. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.